Nehemiah chapter 12. I'm going to read verses 27 through 47, which is where we're specifically going to be looking. And then Brother Corey, next Sunday night, will conclude Nehemiah for us. Um, Let's read this together, church. Now at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites from all their places to bring them to Jerusalem so that they might celebrate the dedication with gladness, with hymns of thanksgiving, and with songs to the accompaniment of cymbals, harps, and lyres. So the sons of the singers were assembled from the district around Jerusalem and from the villages of the Netophathites, from Beth Gilgal and from their fields in Geba and Asmaveth. As for the singers had built themselves villages around Jerusalem, the priests and the Levites purified themselves. They also purified the people, the gates, and the wall. Verse 31, then I had the leaders of Judah come up on top of the wall, and I appointed two great choirs, the first proceeding to the right on top of the wall toward the refuse gate. Hoshashiah uh, and half of the leaders of Judah followed them with Azariah, Ezra, Meshullam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, Jeremiah, and some of the sons of the priests with the trumpets. And Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, the son of Shemaiah, the son of Mataniah, the son of Micaiah, the son of Zakur, the son of Asaph, and his kinsmen, Shemaiah, Azarel, Malali, Galali, Mai, Nathaniel, Judah, and Hanani. With the musical instruments of David, the man of God, and Ezra the scribe went before them at the fountain gate, and they went directly up the steps of the city of David by the stairway of the wall above the house of David to the water gate on the east. The second choir proceeded to the left, while I followed them with half of the people on the wall above the tower of furnaces to the broad wall and above the gate of Ephraim and the old gate by the fish gate, the tower of Ananel, the tower of uh, the hundred as far as the sheep gate. And they stopped at the gate of the guard and then the two choirs took their stand in the house of God. And so did I and half of the officials with me and the priests, Elakim, Messiah, Minamin, Micaiah, Eliahoniah, Zechariah, and Haniah with the trumpets, and Masaiah, Shemaiah, Eleazar, Uzai, Jehonanan, Malkajah, Elam, and Ezer. Then the singers with Jezrahiah, their leader. And on that day, they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced. I want you to focus on verse 43. And on that day, they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced because God had given them great joy. Even the women and children rejoiced so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard from afar. On that day, men were also appointed over the chambers for the stores, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather into them from the fields of the cities the portions required by the law for the priests and Levites. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and Levites who served. They performed the worship of their God and the service of purification together with the singers and the gatekeepers in accordance with the command of David and of his son Solomon. From the days of David and Asaph in ancient times, there were leaders of the singers, songs of praise and hymns of thanksgiving to God. So all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and Nehemiah gave the portions due the singers and the gatekeepers as each day required and set apart the consecrated portion for the Levites. And the Levites set apart the consecrated portion for the sons of Aaron. First Baptist Church of Greg Gables, you thankful for God's word tonight. Let's go to the Lord and thank him for his word. Father, we do thank you uh, for this word. We thank you, Lord, that every um, dot, every stroke of your word, of your law, is good for the hearer. That it is good for, um, Lord, our 
uh, teaching, correction, and rebuke, and training in righteousness. Father, that it purifies us and makes us more like Jesus. And Lord, in the midst of this, as we examine um, worship according to your word, Father, I pray that our hearts would be moved and we would be encouraged and strengthened by it. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Question for you tonight. Have you come to this service of worship with joy and thanksgiving in your heart? Have you been able to sing to the Lord tonight and even this morning with joy and thanksgiving upon your lips? If not, why not? If not, what is it that is keeping you from rejoicing in the Lord and being thankful to him today? I want to suggest something to you. I would suggest to those who come to worship and they're lacking joy and thankfulness uh, that they've failed to recall the reason for coming to worship. When we come to worship, church, we ought to be filled with joy and thanksgiving. Of course, listen, that's, that's not to say that we'll never be sorrowful or mournful or contemplative during worship, no. But it is to say that no matter what we might be going through, no matter how difficult or how terrible, if we are in Christ, we always have good reason to know the joy of the Lord and rejoice. If you are in Christ then God Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, loves you and cares for you. If we are in Christ, we've been redeemed from sin and death. If we are in Christ, we're united to him and we are blessed with all matter of spiritual blessings. If we are in Christ, we have everlasting life. We have a place prepared for us in heaven above. We have riches beyond our understanding. If we are in Christ, then we are in Christ. That ought to be more than enough to bring our hearts to joy and thanksgiving upon our lips. In the passage before us tonight, that's exactly what we find the people of God coming together to worship the Lord with, with with great joy and thanksgiving upon their hearts and lips. And my prayer for us tonight is that God would, would use this account in our lives to bring us great joy and gratitude upon our hearts and our lips today and every day that we're privileged to live in his bountiful grace. As we give our attention to this text before us, uh, we find the people of God coming together to celebrate what God has done. And, and really, when you think about it, all 12 chapters, of it'd be, it'd be strange uh, for us to record all the events, to think about all the events we find through the book of Nehemiah and not find a section like this one, Right? It would be weird where some form of celebration was recorded in light of all God has done. I mean, think about what the Lord has enabled his people to do to accomplish a great work in an amazingly short amount of time. They rebuilt the city in just 52 days. The city walls, not the city. The city walls in just 52 days. Remember, this wall had been in a terrible condition. And in just 52 days, God put it upon the hearts of his people to accomplish his great work. But something more than this was accomplished as well. Remember that big chunk in the middle? The the Lord not only rebuilt the walls, but he revived his people. So not only were the walls built up, but the people of God were built up. 
The Lord brought a revival to the land and to his people. This was great cause um, to worship the Lord, celebrating all that God had done. And so what we see in Nehemiah 12 was a dedication service. And the purpose of a dedication was to give credit where credit was due. Namely, it was praise to God and to thank him for all he had done in bringing all of these things we see to pass. And so this is why we see this dedication service in the place or in the form of worship. The people of God had come to worship God by expressing their joy and their thanksgiving to him for all that he is and all that he has done. And one of the interesting things about this worship service is the fact that this worship service was offered in accordance to God's word. In other words, everything they did that day in worship was done because the scriptures prescribed it that way. I want you to hear this. The amazing thing about this worship service is not only do we see everything done in accordance with God's word, but we also see worship with the right heart attitude. I want you to hear that. Not only were things being done rightly on the outside, but on the inside. And, and I say that because so often we see these two things divorced in the worship services of our present day. Uh, many worship services today might be able to get the hearts of the people all stirred up and, uh, and, and moved towards joy and thanksgiving, but they miss the mark in worshiping the Lord the right way. They, they perhaps have hearts filled with joy, but they lack order, or they might have failed to worship the Lord in the ways that he's prescribed. Uh, God desires joyous praise, but not joyous praise divorced from the right form of worship. God desires both from us. Now, of course, there are worship services where the right forms are followed, but the hearts of the people are not engaged. The right things are being done in worship. You're preaching expository sermons. You're singing rich lyrics. You're you're engaging in scripture reading. It's it's word-focused, but the hearts of the people are not engaged. There's a missing component. A component that people are failing to worship God with joy and thanksgiving upon their hearts. And this is equally wrong. God desires both. He wants the right form of worship and the right heart of worship. Now, let's be honest. As Southern Baptists, we're not likely to fail on the lines of the first group I mentioned. But church, we're very prone to failing with the second group, aren't we? It is fairly easy to go with the motions of offering worship that is accordance to God's word. All it takes is showing up to the worship service each week and following the pastors as they take us through the liturgy. Anybody can do that. But you know, you know what's easy to do? Just that. To, to follow the pastors through the worship service. Just to to follow along and do whatever next in the order of service without thinking about what we are doing. To worship the Lord without engaging our hearts or our minds in any way, shape, or form. Church, again, the Lord wants us to worship him the right way with the right heart. And if we want to worship him well, it would do us well to prepare our hearts for what we're about to engage in. To remind us why we are here each and every Lord's Day. To think about God, about all that he has done, especially as it concerns our redemption. Those who are in Christ have been redeemed by his precious blood. And again, we'll have plenty of reason to worship with joy and thanksgiving upon their hearts and lips. If we would just 
simply take the time to remind ourselves of why we come to worship. Lord willing, we have come to offer this time of worship this evening. And that's the prayer. Now, it's just stating that the saints here in our passage worship the Lord according to his word. I want to spend the rest of our times, I know it's not the world's largest introduction, but I'd like to spend just a few moments showing how this is the case. The things that were done in this worship service were not things that the people of the day just sat around and dreamt up. That they just had a meeting about. They didn't just think, let's go have a worship service and let's just do some of these things in the worship service. Every element that is represented here finds its origin within the word of God itself. This can be seen in the preparations that took place before the actual service was underway. And so we start now with the leaders of God's worship according to his word. You notice that in our text. Who are the first people to be contacted? The Levites. The Levites are. Look at verses 27 through 29 with me. Now at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites from all their places to bring them to Jerusalem so that they might celebrate the dedication with gladness, with hymns of thanksgivings, and uh, with psalms and uh, songs to the accompaniment of cymbals, harps, and lyres. So the sons of the singers were uh, assembled from the district around Jerusalem and from the villages of the Netophatites, if that's how you say that, from Beth Gilgal and from their uh, fields in Geba and Asmaveth, for the singers had built themselves villages around Jerusalem. So think about this. They're gathering the Levites from around the villages. But why were the Levites the first people to be contacted? Because the Levites were the ones uh, whom God, by his word, had set apart to lead the people in worship. And so in accordance with God's word, who is supposed to lead your worship? The Levites. Okay, let's round up the Levites then. We want to have a worship service. God's commanded this is how we do it, so we're going to do it this way. And I, I, want us to sh to, I want to show us from God's word just four quick separate passages from First and Second Chronicles so we can see how it is the case that God is the one who had set the Levites apart to do the leading. Not just with teaching God's people his word, but also leading them within the service itself. First Chronicles 15, 16 says this, then, then David spoke to the chiefs of the, of, of the Levites to appoint their relatives, the singers, with instruments of music, harp, lyres, loud-sounding cymbals, to raise sounds of joy. In the next book over, 2 Chronicles 7, 6, the priests stood at their post, and the Levites also, with the instruments of music to the Lord, which King David had made for giving praise to the Lord for his loving kindness is everlasting. Whenever he gave praise by their means, while the priests on the other side blew trumpets, and all Israel was standing. There we have reference to the Levites being the ones who were set apart from the worship service, this portion, uh, to, to perform this act. Next chapter over, 2 Chronicles 8, 14. Now, accordance to the, according to the ordinance of his father David, he appointed the divisions of the priests for their service and the Levites for their duties of praise and ministering before the priests according to the daily rule and the gatekeepers by their divisions at every gate. For David, the man of God, had so commanded... And one last passage we'll look at and kind of summarize all these verses put together is 2 Chronicles 29-25. He then stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, with harps, with lyres, according to the commandment of David and of God, of Gad, the king's seer, and of Nathan, the prophet. Why? For the command was from the Lord through his prophets. See, in most of those verses we see David commanded, and we say, well, that's not according to, to God's word, but what do we see here? 
God is the one who put it upon the heart of David, of Gad, and of Nathan to instruct the people how to worship him. That instruction came by the commandment of God. And these worship services we see in the Old Testament, they're not, again, dreamt up by men. They're instituted by God. Even though David, Gad, and Nathan were set apart and had set these men apart in the ways we see here, it is ultimately God who wanted things done this way. These choices as to who were to lead in worship were never left to the discretion of men. And and church, hear me, it remains the same today. Uh, uh, Some people are persuaded that anyone can lead in the worship services. So what do they do? They allow women to become pastors they have people who, they don't even know whether or not they're Christians. They're just young and they immediately force these people into some sort of children or youth ministry. They, they don't worship in a, a biblical way. They let immature Christians stand and lead in song or in scripture reading, things like this. But the fact is, as in the days of old, so it remains true today. God is the one who tells us who he has set apart to do what work within the worship service. In his word, we're taught that he continues to set apart men called by him to the ministry of word and sacraments to lead in the worship services of God's people. There's consistency. It's clear in his commands. And the same God who has instituted worship in the Old Testament is the same God who continues to bless the order of the worship services for his people today. And so it's important that we understand that these leaders were according to God's word. Not only that, but look at this. Secondly, in verse 30, we also see the purification that took place according to God's word. The purity of God's worship according to his word. We're told here that the priest, the Levites, and the rest of the saints, along with, um, uh, with the wall and the gates, they were all purified. Now, we ask that question, what, what's the purpose of that? Why were they all purified? Well, if you've been paying attention, it's because that's how God demanded them, prescribed them to be worshipped in his word. Can, can you hear something? God only accepts worship that is pure. This is one of the main lessons the people of God were to learn from the ceremonial law. God only accepts worship that is pure by people who are pure. A major part of this ceremonial law had to do with the whole subject of purification. Everything that was used in worship and every person participating in worship had to be purified. Now listen, when we read through the Old Testament, especially through the book of Leviticus, we come across many things that describe what sorts of things would make a person ceremonially unclean or defiled. If they were defiled, it's clear, they could not go to worship. We also run across many passages in the Old Testament that describe the many things that people do to become purified so as to be able then to be cleansed from their sin, to be pure enough to go into the worship place. And at the end of the day, God's word is the final rule on all these matters. God's word is the place, the thing that prescribes these things to be done in these ways. Now, here's the good news, right? Praise God as New Testament worshipers. By the way, As New Testament worshipers, God still demands worship that is pure. You know that, right? He has not lessened the standard for what kind of worship is acceptable in his sight. But thankfully, matters have been simplified immensely with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
See, all of those ceremonial washings, all of those sprinkling of blood upon the utensils and altars pointed forward to the shed blood of Jesus Christ, whose blood truly and effectively purifies all things pertaining to worship. If we are in Christ, then we have been cleansed by his blood. And our worship is made pure by that same blood. He still requires pure worship, folks. But our worship is purified, sanctified by the precious blood of the spotless lamb, Jesus Christ. In this passage, uh, we see not only the leaders according to the word of God, the purity of God's worship according to his word, but I thirdly want to show you real quick uh, the sacrifices that were offered. We won't take time to look up the scriptures, but suffice to say, the sacrifices that were offered of God's worship were, you guessed it, according to God's word. The reason animals were slain on the altar wasn't because weird people thought that was a good idea. This would be fun. Let's just have a, a slaughtering take place. It was because people got joy out of slaying animals. It was because God had commanded them to do so. And God had commanded them to do so because he wanted to impress upon them and all of us that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. So all in all, we see here in this passage, worship that was done according to God's word. I had much more to say about the sacrifice of worship, but I want to go ahead and move on to the next point. I want us to look at um, the order of God's worship according to his word. The orderliness of this worship service. Notice this. Remember, every detail, every particular, even as we saw this morning in scripture, is given for a good purpose. All the leaders had their place and all the leaders did their thing in an orderly manner. As you read uh, this particular text, you cannot help but to be somewhat impressed with the orderliness of this whole service of worship, right? We even read about one group walking along the wall, being led by Ezra, who represents the word. Then opposite of him, there's another choir that's led and being followed up by Nehemiah. We're told that both these groups are, are walking on the top of the wall and they meet together in the temple. Now, as a youth pastor and as a former youth choir leader, even the responsibility of having people walk at the same time is uh, uh, too much pressure for me to handle, right? Just the appearance of you, you go on the count of three, one, two, three, go. No, no, why did you go on two, right? Just it's, it should be simple, but even the beautiful picture of them walking up together in unison, it all has to, to bring within us some sort of respect for the order of such things. So all this gives a sense, all was done decently in order, which by the way, is a command from scripture. Did you know that? In the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 14, 40, Paul says, in speaking to the church of Corinth, where they're addressing things like tongues, they're addressing things like the Lord's Supper, Paul says, but all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. God always requires that worship be done in an orderly manner. It doesn't mean the spirit doesn't move. It doesn't mean uh, there's not a, a, some a responsibility of us to engage in worship. It doesn't mean we have to stand still and in order. No, but church, if your service is reflected by the, the chaoticness of it all, and that's an element of your worship service, that's not worship according to God's word. Worship is not to be chaotic, free-for-all, 
Let's go backflipping down the aisles. <laughs> Worship is to be in an orderly manner because that's the way the word of God prescribes it. Absolutely. Well, the passage in 1 Corinthians is part of the New Testament. What it teaches us is nothing new. Rather, what it does is it reemphasizes the fact that just because we're, we're no longer under the, the strict laws of ceremonial worship, it doesn't mean we can just do whatever we want in worship. Yes, the ceremonial laws, they're, they're done away with, but it doesn't mean things can now be done indecently and out of order according to God's word. But now I want to get to the big two that we talked about at the beginning. I want us to note that the worship that was offered, according to God's word, was also worship that was filled with joy. The joy of God's worship according to his word. Now, you guys know if you've listened to me in any sort of succession, I love the topic about worshiping God with joy. I, I don't know if it was just being raised in the church and, and feeling my own struggle and sin that sometimes church was a burden that church wasn't to be joyous, that everything else was to, to be for my joy, but church was to be serious. No, friends, God desires this worship service to be filled, filled with joy. In verse 27, we're, we're told that they celebrated. Uh, the word celebrate certainly has with it great joy. They celebrated with gladness. In verse 43, we find the term joy or rejoicing in just verse 43 used five times. And so they worshiped God according to his word and it filled them with joy to do so. Imagine that. What does that then say to the folks who were under the impression that unless they were free to worship God however they pleased, their worship can't be joyful? What does that say? I would say it proves they're under a false impression. The scriptures tell us plainly that there is delight in obeying God and doing things his way. There's delight in that. Psalm 19.8, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Obeying God brings joy, not just in everyday life, but also in worship. In Psalm 40, verse 8, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. In Psalm 119, we probably know you'll find the same sentiment over and over and over again where the psalmist says he delights in the commandments of God. There is no basis for people saying to worship God according to biblical principles of worship is joyless. There's no, there's no basis for it. The exact opposite ought to be the case. There is tremendous joy to be had in worshiping God according to his word. Because ultimately, our joy comes from the Lord. We, we've seen it earlier. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Verse 43, again from Nehemiah 12. And on that day, they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced because God had given them great joy. Even the women and children rejoiced so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard from afar. Think about that. God had given them great joy. The psalmist confessed the same thing in Psalm 92.4. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by what you have done. I will sing for joy at the works of your hands. 
Can I tell you, in our family worship service each night, this is, this is the tremendous struggle to find the balance between order in worship and joy in worship, right? If you've ever done family, uh, family worship with a four-year-old and an almost two-year-old, uh, you can tell the, the, the difficulty of such things. And yet at the end of it, no matter how much we might have to say focus, like worship is about engagement, Addy, Emmett, we want to focus, we want to focus. Man, when, when we sing, for the most part, we sing with smiles on our faces and with joy. Because we want our kids to know that to be engaged in this worship service is a joyful thing. It's not evil, it's not bad, it's not the time where... We're, we're trying to be mean to each other. We are celebrating what God has done. As we teach our kids uh, the, the doctrinal truths of God's word, we want to know and be encouraged that they're doing so with a joyful heart. Man, I got to, uh, to, to see one of our, our guests here at, um, at lunch today. Uh, and the, the, this brother wanted me to see his kid um, memorize the script, names of the books of the Bible from Genesis all the way to Ecclesiastes. And the smile on this kid's face, right, that he was able to do that, the smile on his face, man, it just brought me back to the idea of faith like a child, celebrating the joy of, of knowing God and his word. Such an encouraging, wonderful thing. Our joy, listen to me, our joy isn't based on us. It shouldn't be based on whether or not we heard our favorite song or the style of worship was him versus modern. No, our joy comes from the Lord, from meditating upon who God is, from meditating upon what he's done, worship that is done according to God's word. It can bring us joy because that worship, it's based on him, on what he said in his word. God had made his people so joyful in this setting that they could be heard from afar. That's what the scriptures say. All the people, the men, the women, and the children could be heard from far off distances in their worship. Friends, know this. Joy is central to Christian worship. It's one of the things, by the way, that sets Christianity apart from other religions so many other religions are mainly concerned about appeasing the God of their faith with earning favor from these false gods. But Christianity is a religion of grace through and through, a religion where we worship God for what he's done, a religion that focuses on what he's done rather than what men are doing. Our faith is one that worships God Almighty for coming down to earth, for becoming man just like us, living a perfect life, dying a perfect death, on our behalf, for giving us his spirit so that we can worship him forever and ever. Christianity is a faith that is full of joy. But not just joy, it's joy partnered with gratitude for what God has done. That's why we see the thanksgiving, a thankfulness, a thankful heart that we have in worshiping God his way according to his word. Christianity is unique this way. It leads us that note. It's filled with thanksgiving. In verse 27, thanksgiving is, is, is offered as part of the introductory, introductory explanation behind the whole purpose of this worship service. We're given thanks. In verse 31, we learn the choir was appointed to give thanks. In verse 40, both choirs are recorded as having given thanks. And so our thanksgiving goes hand in hand with our rejoicing. They don't separate from one another. We rejoice in the Lord 
And we offer thanksgiving for who he is, for what he's done, and for what he will yet do. Now, as noted earlier, by dedicating this wall to the Lord, they were acknowledging the fact that it is God who deserved all the glory. Yes, God uses means, but he alone is deserving of glory. Yes, these people were actually the ones performing the worship service, doing the labor here. They actually put the bricks together, but God was the one who empowered them to do it all. For we know that it is, it is God who is at work both in us to do his will for his good pleasure. God's also the one who populated the city, by the way. He's the one who revived his people. He's the one who put the desire in the hearts of the people uh, to desire his word and to worship him according to his word. So remember this, in the midst of our worship, God alone deserves all the glory. And he was the one to thank. Our worship needs to be filled with joy and thanksgiving. And so let me just say, if we're having a difficult time being joyful or thankful in our worship, we shouldn't make the mistake of thinking that the problem is with the worship service or that we need to find another church that's more effective at stirring our emotions to make us more joyful or thankful. Instead, we just simply ought to be spending more time in thinking about what God has done, what he is doing, and what he's promised to do for us who believe in him. We ought to think about our gracious Lord and how he's the one who's caused us to be born again from above. How he's given us the gift of even faith to believe in him and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. How he has drawn us to himself by his wonderful grace. How he's justified us. How he is sanctifying us. And how one day he will glorify us. Friends, it is absolutely no wonder why the Apostle Paul had no issue with repeating himself for us to rejoice in the Lord in Philippians 4.4. 4 rejoice in the Lord always. You didn't get it the first time. So again, I will say rejoice. Church family, if you are in Christ, you have reason upon reason upon reason forever and ever to rejoice in the Lord your God. I mean, God has done some marvelous things in our lives, hasn't he? Uh, we, even in this, this church, have had diagnosis where uh, things didn't look good and people are still having each new day to worship King Jesus with those, in the midst of those terrible diagnoses. We praise him for that. He's re it's worth rejoicing in his continual blessings in our life. And if that doesn't fill you with joy... Does it fill you with, with thanksgiving and, and knowing that God didn't owe us anything? He gave us Christ. That's certainly enough. But then he continues to bless us with each new day. He continues to bless us with our children, our families, what we get to engage in with worship, with our church. He continues to bless us with such wonderful gifts from above. If that doesn't fill you with joy and thanksgiving, then I'm afraid you've never really experienced the transforming grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. I, there is no place for a Christian who is joyless and ungrateful. According to God's word. And if that's where you are tonight, if, if you just cannot and have not been able to rejoice in the Lord for all that he is and for all that he has done, then, then friends, my encouragement to you is simply to look to Christ if you're not in Christ, you, you may need to meet him for the first time. 
And certainly the people here in this assembly tonight would, would love and could attest to you that once you meet Jesus, your heart will overflow with joy. It's our prayer that this would happen. I know it's Sunday night, right? And so we're the quote-unquote real Christians. <laughs> Friends, if there are any here who do not yet know Christ, our prayer is that everyone would see that God might be pleased to grant that grace to him. And, and maybe for us the encouragement is that maybe the people on Sunday morning or the people in our workplace, the people who don't know Christ around us should see more joy and thanksgiving to God. Maybe our prayer is that we would exhibit this kind of worship because it's the kind of worship God prescribes in his word. Maybe that's the application for us here tonight. Is that we would pray, God, would you, would you allow me to be more joyous, but not just joyous in circumstances, joyous ultimately in you. Joy, praise, and thanksgiving. May it be upon our lips now and always. And any time it's not, remember God's grace is sufficient always to point his people back to his gospel so they'll be reminded where the source of our joy and thanksgiving and our praise comes from. Comes from him. Isn't he so good? In the midst of the days you forget, and friends, let's be honest, your pastor forgets to have joy and thanksgiving all the time. All the time. But God is so faithful to bring my heart not to, to circumstances, not even to immediately the blessings I'm surrounded with, but to bring my heart to the gospel. And every time I preach the gospel to myself, I cannot help but be filled with joy, thanksgiving, and praise. A true gospel. Amen. I pray to do the same for you. Let's join our hearts together in prayer tonight. Father, oh, how we thank you for your word and we thank you for the gospel. Lord, we know that that sin is real, that we experience difficulty in this life, and that, Lord, oftentimes we struggle to, to, to wonder how we can remain joyful in thanksgiving. But, Father, help us see that's, that's such a part of it, that in the midst of this world, in the midst of what we could be without you, you've given us the blessing of your righteousness, that you've set us apart from this sin-stained world, that in a way, Father, we really truly remain untouched by the sin stain of this world because of your goodness and your faithfulness. So, Lord, even in the midst of circumstances, there, there's really no excuse for the Christian not to have joy and gratitude when we consider the gospel. And yet, Lord, you know how weak we are. You know how we fail to remember, even as we proclaim that we will remember this morning, we so often fail to remember what you've done. And so, Father, for the Christian, we pray that you strengthen the means for grace in our lives. Lord, we'd be more devoted to your word, more devoted to prayer, more devoted to testimony to the church, so that we'd be continually reminded of the gospel, and so that we would live lives that are full of joy and thanksgiving and worship and worship according to your word. Father, would you help us? Thank you, because I know you will. <laughs> I know you'll help us. And yet I continue to ask it because I know that I, my heart is prone to wander. 
So Father, I thank you for the gift of this church that you will place us in each other's lives to remind us that you are good, you are faithful, your works are good, your works are faithful, and you are worthy of every ounce of our worship, but not worship begrudgingly, not worship without a heart engaged, but worship filled with joy and filled with gratitude, filled with praise because of your glorious gospel of grace. Lord, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, I pray that today would be the day that they know you and they would... They would experience a heart that's overflowed with joy. And for us as your church, would you help us, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.